0: Hello brothers and sisters, it is the Remnant Warrior here to tell you guys about another absolutely amazing way for you to get exclusive access to documentaries, audio and ebooks, and exclusive episodes of our brand new monthly subscription only podcast, with myself john and jeremy from by their fruits and a different special guest host each month and best of all you the subscribers get to vote and choose on the topic that we discuss in the episodes each month you get all of this as well as the same access To be almost 200 episodes, books, and documentaries that you already have access to for only $2.99 a month. Now we have a library of over 250 documentaries, eBooks, and audiobooks that we will be uploading to our subscriber only content each month you will not only get access to absolutely amazing content but you will also be helping this ministry to continue to spread the good news of the gospel of the kingdom to over 70 nations around the world that currently listen to the programs and Bible studies on Kingdom Productions Network. So guys, please pray about becoming a monthly subscriber. It's only $2.99 a month. That's less than a latte at Starbucks. So, I hope you guys will sincerely think about helping us out, and I love each and every one of you, may God bless you all, grace and peace. You are now listening to The Place for Biblical End Times Truth, The Remnant Report. love our lives even on un-
1: Welcome to Kingdom Theology. I hope you're blessed in the Lord today. In this video, we're going to start a new series going through the end times, or eschatology. Now, eschatology is not something that I am really dogmatic on. It's not something that I'm sure that I have all the answers to. In fact, I'm sure that I do not have answers after 30 years on and off trying to study this subject. I continually, like, think that I'm on a... uh, the right way, and then I find out, oh no, that doesn't fit either, and I have not found a system that I I feel is like really encompasses everything that the Bible teaches about the end times, and so I thought it would be good to go ahead and study this because over the last several months, several people have asked my views on these things and asked different questions about related to end times, so I thought it would be good to go ahead and study this, but I'm going to study it not as I usually try to do, kind of I have a series kind of A to Z. I know where we're going to end up whenever I start the video. But with this one, I I think it would be helpful to us just to learn how to study a subject. And so I'm going to jump into the topic and begin to study, but I'm going to leave room for myself to change my ideas because I might come across a passage and, and study it in the context and say, wait a second, that means what I thought about that was wrong. So I just wanted to kind of use this as a kind of a case study that we would go through and learn how to study a topic in 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 depth and try to come to some sort of systematic understanding of the topic. And we do that by studying one passage at a time and then cautiously making links between passages one passage in another or finding principles in a certain passage and cautiously uh, applying it to other passages of scripture and so i just want us to see and to work through that process together so if you're interested in eschatology if maybe you don't know where you stand either or maybe you do know where you stand and you just want to watch uh, somebody make the fool of themselves going through the scripture and and butchering it okay then join along you know so we want to just kind of go through and and open up the scripture and start. Now, uh, before we start, I, I do have some prejudice. I uh, There's at least two systems that I think are dangerous, and that whatever I say in these videos never construe me to be supporting one of these uh, systems. Uh, one of those is going to be uh, theonomy and post So in that theory, the idea is that God's law is eventually, because post says that Jesus is going to come back after the millennium, in other words, the world is going to be to some degree Christianized before Jesus comes back. And in order for the world to be Christianized, there needs to be a law, there needs to be a government. Everything needs to be kind of influenced by, by the Bible and by, uh, by by God's law. And so there is a strain of postmillennialism that says that. The law of the land is going to be the law of the Bible to some degree or another. They might parse that out differently, but I believe this is dangerous. I believe this misunderstands the nature of God's law, the law of Christ in the new covenant. I believe it misunderstands the distinction between being in this world, but not of this world of the kingdom of Christ being not of this world. I think that it, it it abuses many things. It brings in ideas of, of, you know, the cultural mandate that we're supposed to change all the different areas of society and that. We're, we're not supposed to disciple individuals so they would say di- disciple individuals but they would also say that whole nations are to be transformed I don't believe that this is the correct message of the, the scripture and it's the not right application of the law so I think it has become dangerous in some right now in, in our generation it's mostly just theory and talk because there's nothing that can really be enforced but if you go back to the time of reformation things like uh, Calvin's Geneva where they put heretics to death witches to death Uh, you know, because they were against the law of God. I think that this is dangerous. I think that this is unchristian. Another thing that I think is quite uh, dangerous is full preterism. Now, there's forms of preterism and there's truths in preterism. Preterism says that basically everything, the day of the Lord, judgment day, the second coming of Christ, to one degree or another, all happened in the first century in A.D. 70 whenever Jerusalem was destroyed. So everything that the scripture is talking about when it's talking about the day of the Lord is always talking about A.D. 70. Now, there are... Uh, there might be some different ways they parse that out or they might describe it in a different way. But generally speaking, that's what they believe. And they believe that as you go through the epistles, you read uh, Thessalonians or you read Corinthians or whatever you read when it talks about the day of the Lord, of the Lord's coming, of judgment day, it applies all of that to that past event. I believe this is dangerous, but I believe it takes away so much of the scripture by trying to force it all into one Uh, one little place, in one little issue, instead of taking the whole broad view of Scripture that, yes, it talks about AD 70 and the destruction of Jerusalem, but it also talks about the coming of Jesus Christ in glory at the end of the age, transforming our lowly bodies, raising us from the dead. And so uh, I think that uh, extreme forms or full preterism, I think, are quite dangerous. Uh, Now, I also have uh, a bit of prejudice against the dispensationalist system. If you've seen some of my videos talking about dispensationalism as a system to interpret scripture, I believe that it causes, uh, problems. I believe that it, uh, it's not, I don't, I don't put it in the category of, uh, theonomy and postmillennialism or full preterism. I don't think it's dangerous like that. I just think it has some issues. And so I, I don't ascribe to dispensationalism, including dispensationalism about the end times, you know, uh, really nailing down exactly a pre-tribulation rapture, seven years of tribulation, you know, the abomination of desolation, you know, the rebuilt temple, all these things. I'm open to some of the aspects that are brought up by dispensationalism uh, re- regarding end times things, but the whole system I do not accept. I do not accept that we come to scripture with this idea of separating certain things and that we place, we interpret one set of scripture with one category and then uh, in one uh we do it. We interpret something about Israel in one way, but we interpret something about the church in another way, and that we divide everything up. I believe that they are not rightfully dividing Scripture to use their copyrighted phrase. I, I believe instead that they are wrongfully dividing the Scripture. That they are oftentimes cutting asunder what God has joined together, which is not a good thing to do. So, I believe that the way that they deal with Scripture is practicing exegesis. I was listening recently to uh, John MacArthur talk about. Uh, defending the pre-tribulation rapture and I was listening to him talk about 1st Corinthians or 1st Thessalonians chapter 4 and 5 And I was just like, wow, almost every time he quoted the verse, he brought something into the passage and, you know, peace and safety. Well, that means when the Antichrist is sitting, I mean, it brought a lot of stuff in the passage. So I believe that's a dangerous aspect. Dangerous in the sense that it helps us. It causes us to misunderstand the scripture. Not dangerous in the sense of it's going to lead us away from the gospel or anything like that. So if you are a dispensationalist in your end times views, uh, you you might still be benefited from what we're talking. And I might come closer to dispensationalism as we go through this because I'm open to wherever the scripture leads. As I said, I've, I've studied this in depth many times over the last 30 years and I always kind of get defeated and kind of go out a little bit more agnostic and finding at least one system that, oh, I thought this was going to work, but it doesn't. Some of the scripture doesn't work. I also think that the pre-tribulation rapture, I do not think that that is a... I'm prejudiced against it. One, because I don't see it anywhere in Scripture, uh, but also because I, I think it tends to, one, it kind of tends to be myopic in the sense that usually people that think that way come from a Western background. You know, it, this this started, it didn't start until the mid-1800s. Uh, That's when this idea of pre-tribulation rapture came to, to exist in the church. Before that, it was not in the church, uh, as far as I know. And... Oftentimes, it's kind of this idea that before the tribulation and all the bad stuff really starts going, that we're going to be raptured out. And that doesn't mean that everybody that teaches pre-tribulation rapture gives that impression, but there is some of that in the camp. And I believe that that doesn't take into account all the martyrs throughout the last 2,000 years of history. It doesn't take into account all the martyrs and the suffering that's going on in the church today. But it's a kind of westernized, myopic view of, oh, everything's good now, but it's going to get worse. So now, you know, the liberals are going to be in charge and everything's going to go bad, And but we're going to get raptured out. I think that that is... Uh, you know, it's kind of like pop theology in, in my thinking, kind of like TikTok theology. I don't think the scripture backs it up and I don't think that it prepares people. So in this sense, it's dangerous that it doesn't prepare our hearts to suffer. Uh, Paul said that through tribulation, we enter the kingdom of God and so much uh, tribulation. And so we are going to go through tribulation, whether that means the, the great tribulation or, or or what it means, but it means that we're going to go through suffering. We need to prepare for that. And I believe that oftentimes those that hold the pre-tribulation rapture kind of downplay that issue so what i want to do in this series is uh i I have notes that i'm going by for each section but i don't know where this is going to lead we're going to start in matthew chapter 24 and with matthew chapter 24 we're going to try to walk through that passage try to really get an understanding of it i think it's a real key passage uh, to understand some principles and also understand just the issues that we're talking about about eschatology But I am going to allow myself to get off on tangents, on side trails, kind of jump into some scripture that, you know, I'm kind of, you know, curious about. And what we want to do is really focus in on each passage. Uh, The one thing that we can do in general is we can come to a passage of scripture, we can understand the context of the book, of the history, and we can come to a clear understanding of what the passage was meant to convey. Okay? So from that, then... We compare that with other passages and we cautiously try to connect those with one another. We cautiously try to connect uh, what one passage is saying to another. An error that I see, or at least I, I, I think that I see, is in Matthew chapter 24, when it talks about the abomination of desolation, Luke chapter 21 gives us a clear idea about what that is. That's the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. When the armies surround Jerusalem, that's the abomination of desolation. So it's talking about the destruction This is Jesus giving his insight or his, you know, uh, revelation on Daniel chapter 9, verse uh, 25 through 27. And so he's telling us that that's what Daniel was talking about, that after the Messiah came, then Jerusalem would be destroyed. Okay, now we'll get into that. So if you say, well, that's totally wrong, then it's okay. We'll we'll get into that as we, we go through here. But then people want to quickly connect that with, 2 Thessalonians, the man of sin who sits himself in the temple and proclaims himself to be God but one is talking about destroying the temple and the other one is talking about and it's destroying the first temple the temple that was there that Jesus and his disciples saw and the other one is talking about some other form of temple whether it be the body of Christ or whether it be a rebuilt temple in some way it's talking about something else and so I don't think it's so easy to connect those two passages together But maybe they do connect together, and that's what we're trying to find as we go throughout and study, is what passages can be connected to give us a bigger, broader view of Scripture. We also want to look at passages of Scripture and see what principles we can receive from that. We're going to look at one of those principles today in Isaiah chapter 13, a principle that can help us to understand other passages of Scripture, but we want to do that cautiously. A lot of times... Uh, people that one of the dangers of studying eschatology in in general is that people, and myself included, when we jump into it, then we want to connect all the dots. We kind of become like those conspiracy theorists with their, you know, big, you know, white board up here and connecting all the lines and everything together, and we become, you know, like everything is connected. And so what that does is that one, it makes it idolatrous because we spend so much time focused on that instead of living a godly life, instead of uh, serving Jesus Christ, loving God, loving others, instead of uh, focusing in on the gospel truths, we focus in on these things because our, our minds are curious, our hearts are curious. So one, it distracts us, but it can also become divisive because then when we come up with our grand theories and our grand ideas, then we can cause division because we say, oh, you don't believe in pre-tribulation rapture? Oh, you don't believe in pre-rapture? Oh, you don't even know anything about this then. I mean, we can start to become divisive over things that really don't matter. And that's kind of where I find, except for those things that I think that are dangerous, that you know, the theonomy and post-millennialism and uh, you know, the full preterism, I think that in most cases, these things are not dangerous. Of course, there are always going to be cults that talk about, uh, you know, uh, for example, there's the Mother God cult, I believe it's in, I don't know, it's Korea or China, that's the return of Jesus, but it's a woman, you know, there's going to be those out there. So those, of course, are from the get-go, those are obviously, have nothing to do with Christianity, but I mean, within Within Christianity, except for the two that I've mentioned, I believe that most are going to be innocuous, uh, whether it be dispensationalist view or whether it be an amillennial view or uh, historic premillennialism or futurism or historicist or partial preterist. I think that these are going to be generally okay. And so we don't want to divide over them. And so I hope that this series will not be something of division, but be something where we can kind of explore the passage of the scripture and maybe look at them in a way that we haven't looked at them before. And in this study, I reserve the right to be wrong. I reserve the right to go back to passages that I already covered and change my mind about them. And uh, so sometimes this might be haphazard. We're going to go through it, God willing, just step by step, see where we go with this, and hope that everybody finds it helpful. So we're going to start here in Matthew chapter 24. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and jump back to... Matthew chapter 21 and get some context for uh, what's often called the Olivet Discourse whenever Jesus talks to his disciples about the destruction of the temple. And so we're going to get some context to that, first of all. If we go back to Matthew chapter 21 and we look and starting in verse 33, where Jesus gives a parable. He gives a parable about a landowner who owned a vineyard and he had workers in the vineyard and those workers in the vineyard were supposed to give him part of the fruit at, at different seasons uh, whenever the fruit came was bearing. So he would send his servants to come collect the fruit, but they would treat them badly. Sometimes they would even kill them, and they would cast them out. Okay. Finally, he sends his son because he thinks they'll respect my son, they'll give the fruit that uh, is supposed to be given, and then then everything will work well. But they don't. They kill the son because they say, this is the heir, we're going to get the vineyard. And so they kick him out of the garden by, by killing him. So then Jesus is talking to the religious leaders and he's giving them this as a parable. And it says in verse 40, therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these those vine dressers? They said, he will severely destroy those wicked men and rent his vineyard to other vine dressers who will give him the fruits in their seasons. So they understood the parable. They understood that there was going to be destruction and judgment. But who was this parable about? It was about the people of Israel, particularly in Jerusalem, but also in general the people of Israel, that they had oftentimes been sent prophets. And finally, they were sent Jesus Christ, but they were rejecting him, and they were going to kill him and cast him out of Jerusalem. And so they answered correctly. But then verse 42, Jesus said to them, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. So he's saying, look, you're going to reject me, but I'm the the cornerstone. If you reject me, then you are going to be in trouble. And it says in verse 43, Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing its fruits. In other words, the kingdom of God is going to be taken away from the Jewish people that are unbelievers And given to those, whether Jew or Gentile, that trust in Jesus Christ and follow after him. Those that give him the fruit, those that receive the Son, will be given the right to become children of God, whether Jew or Gentile. As it said in the beginning of John, in John chapter 1, verse 11, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. And so this is saying the same thing here that Jesus is saying. Verse 44, whoever falls on this stone, now which is the stone? The stone is the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. Whoever falls on Jesus Christ will be broken to pieces. In other words, those that were seeking to kill him were going to fail. They were going to be judged in the process, but on whomever it falls, it will crush him. But whenever that cornerstone comes back, it's going to crush. So those that are going to seek to kill Jesus Christ are going to be judged. And that cornerstone, Jesus Christ himself, is going to judge that nation. Verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this his parable, they perceived that he was speaking of them. But as they tried to arrest him, they feared the crowd because they held him as a prophet. If we flip over to Luke chapter 19, we see another similar parable. This is about uh, starting in verse 12. Therefore he said, A nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom and to return. So he called his ten servants and entrusted them to ten pounds, and said to them, "Trade until I come." But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, "We do not want this man to reign over us." When he returned, having received the kingdom, he summoned these servants together to whom he had entrusted the money that he might know what everyone had gained. So then it goes on and talks about the, the parable talents, the one who gained one or ten pounds, gained ten more, etc. But what we see at the end of the parable is this. Uh, Verse 26, I tell you that everyone to everyone who who has been given, but from him who has not, even what he has will be taken away from him. Verse 27, but as for those enemies of mine who would not let me reign over them, bring them here and slay them before me. So he talks about the judgment on those that would not receive him, those that rejected him. So we understand this is in Luke chapter 19 before we get to Luke chapter 21, which is a parallel with uh, Matthew 24, we see that the context that's building up is that Jesus is not only—he didn't only come and preach about the fact that he was going to die and rise from the dead and that we're going to be saved through him. He also came as a prophet to the nation to proclaim the reality of the kingdom of God, and he brought the kingdom, uh, proclaimed the kingdom of God, but they rejected it. They rejected him because he's the king, and by rejecting him, you're rejecting the kingdom. And so God was, he was proclaiming that there was going to be judgment on that nation. If we flip back over to Matthew chapter 23, we see right before we get to 24, again, we see the context. Verse 37: "O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to you, how often I would have gathered your children as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not. Look, your house is left to you desolate, desolate, destroyed. For I tell you, you shall not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So we see this is leading right into Matthew chapter 24 in the context that Jesus has been proclaiming that there's going to be judgment on the nation because they're rejecting the Messiah. So now let's start in Matthew chapter 24, verse 1. Jesus departed from the temple and was leaving when his disciples came to show him the temple buildings. Jesus answered them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, Not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. We cannot overemphasize enough how important these two verses are for understanding Matthew chapter 24. In this passage, they're talking about the buildings of the temple system, the complex. They're pointing to those, and Jesus says, You see these stones? You see these buildings? These are going to be destroyed. Not one stone will be left upon another. So this is the context of the passage. This is the main thrust. And what is actually happening is that they're looking at a temple and Jesus is saying, this temple that you're seeing is going to be destroyed. We must understand that. That's the same if we look in Luke chapter 21 or if we look in Mark chapter 13, the two parallel passages. Okay, and let's go to verse three, because here's what we want to focus in on Uh, in this video. We want to focus in on what is exactly is Jesus talking about in Matthew 24? What questions is he answering? And so we're going to focus on these, these questions that are asked by the disciples. But let's go ahead and start in Luke chapter... Let's see, Luke chapter 21. Because there's a little bit difference in Luke 21 and Mark 13 versus Matthew 24. So Luke 21... Okay, in verse 5, we see again, As some spoke of how beautiful the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts, he said, As for these things, these things which you see, the days will come when not one stone shall be left on another and will not be thrown down. Verse 7, They asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? Okay, when will what things be? When will this temple be destroyed? When is this going to happen? You just said that this temple that we're looking at is going to be destroyed. When will this temple be destroyed? When will these things be? And what will be the sign when this is about to happen? Okay. What will be the sign that the destruction of this temple is about to happen? We need to understand this context. It's very important that we understand this. Okay. So they ask two questions. When will the temple, this temple we're looking at be destroyed? And when will, what will be the sign that this temple we're looking at is about to be destroyed? Okay. Those are the two questions. In Mark, If we go to Mark chapter 13, we see similar. Two questions. Mark chapter 13, verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? What things? Going back to verse 2. Jesus answered, Do you not see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. So tell us, when will these things happen? When will this temple be destroyed? And the second question, and what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? So, it's similar to what was said in Luke, that w- what will be the sign that this is about to take place, that these things are about to happen, that this temple is about to be destroyed. Okay, but now if we flip over to Matthew chapter 24, we're going to find a, a tweak, a, a, something a little bit different about the question. We need to understand that when Matthew, Mark, and Luke were writing, they were sharing the the gospel, they were sharing the history of Christ, of his Death, burial, resurrection, of his ministry, of his healings, of his birth. They were sharing all these things, but they were sharing it in the context that they wanted to explain something in particular. So they all have a slightly different focus. They, uh, they focus on different aspects. They'll leave some things out or emphasize other things in order to make their point clear. Now, John does this too. Now, John's a little bit different than what we call the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's a little bit different, but we can see his viewpoint very clear. Uh, in, for example, in in John, he was writing later on and he was writing when there was already more Gentile believers than Jewish believers. And so because of that, there, there was a lot of persecution that was happening from the Jews to the Jewish believers, but also even to the Gentile believers. And so John was writing to encourage them, to strengthen them, that they were truly uh, the people of God, that they had eternal life and that they were chosen by God. He was writing to encourage them in that. But when you l- read his writing, if we quoted just now, John chapter one verse eleven through twelve, it said, "He came to his own, that is, to the Jews, but they did not receive him. But to all who received him, he gave the right to become children of God." In other words, the Gentiles are also going to be in the kingdom of God. Also, we see in John chapter three verse sixteen, Jesus said, "For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, not just Jews, but the entire world." Uh, we see it also in John chapter four that Jesus. What he doesn't do in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John points out that he did do. He went even to the Samaritans. He went and spent two days in a Samaritan village proclaiming the gospel to them. And then whenever they heard his word, the whole city began to proclaim, this is the Savior of the world. So why would uh, John include the Samaritans, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not? Because he's trying to make the point that God, that Jesus is the savior of the whole world and that you Gentiles who are believers, even though you're being persecuted, you have eternal life and you are the people of God. And so this is something we need to understand when we come to Matthew, we're going to see slightly different questions that are asked by the disciples and we're going to see that uh, it's going to be painted in a different way. So let's look at that. Verse three, Matthew chapter 24, verse three, as he sat on the Mount of Olives the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be? Okay, so that's the same question. Same, what these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone will be, shall be left up appear upon another that shall not be thrown down. So when will these things be? So that's the same question. But then he says this, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Okay, so this is going to be slightly different. Now, those that are in the preterist camp, especially full preterism, will say that what he's saying here, what will be the sign of your coming and of your end of the age, is talking about his coming into his kingdom in AD 70 when he destroys Jerusalem. That was his coming. That was full and complete. That was the coming of Jesus Christ. Okay? And that was the end of the Jewish age and in some degree they'll say that all happened there. So that's what they want to say. Now, Without getting too far off on a tangent, we do need to understand that there is some validity to what they're talking about when they say that the coming of Jesus is not talking about his coming at the end of the world, but his coming into his kingdom. So let's take a a few minutes to look into that. If we turn to Daniel chapter 7, in verses 1 through 8, it gives a vision, and this vision is meant to represent four kingdoms, uh, the kingdoms in history. There was Babylon... Uh, the Medio persians then the Grecian Empire, and then finally the Roman Empire. Okay? And then it gives a vision after that, talking about all these empires that were going to come. Then in verse 9, it gives a vision of God sitting on his throne. Then I watched until the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days was seated, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was like a fiery flame, and its wheels burning as fire. A fiery... St- Stream issued and came out from before him. A a thousand thousands ministered to him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The judgment seat was set. The books were open. So when we see this, we see that, okay, it's in the time of the fourth kingdom, in the time of Rome, that this is happening. So this was a long time ago. So, you know, the Roman Empire uh, fell around, you know, I think it was, I don't want to say 400s or 500 AD, it was 425 or 525, I can't remember, but it was sacked by the barbarians and then it switched and transformed and transfigured into something different, which later in our study maybe we'll get into, they transfigured into the Holy Roman Empire when the papacy and the empire joined together and it was a mix between all the barbarian tribes, what eventually became Europe. But here, this was happening, the, the, the kingdom of God was set up or God's throne was shown in this time. If you flip back to Daniel chapter two, when there was also another dream, when it ta- started with Babylon and then ended with Rome being the, the clay feet, uh, the, the its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of cray, clay in verse 33, which was the four kingdoms. So it just gives the kingdoms instead of in four beasts, it talks about a statue with four different parts. But then in verse 44, it says, in the days of these kings, that is in the, the fourth kingdom, the God of heaven shall set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to another people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it broke in pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, and the silver and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter and the dream is certain and its king in its interpretation is certain. And so, uh, we see that in the time of the Roman Empire, God was going to establish his kingdom. That was expressed in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7. But then, it goes back to Daniel chapter 7, and we see what we're talking about here, about the coming of the Son of Man. You say, well, what does this have to do with it? If uh, if we flip back to Daniel chapter 7, after we see this vision of God, the Ancient of Days sitting on the throne, thousands ministering to him, then in verse 13 it says, I saw in the night visions, and there was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. There was given to him a dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. So what was mentioned in Daniel 2 about the kingdom that we set up during the time of the Roman Empire is also mentioned here in Daniel chapter 7. But what we want to focus on is that it says in verse 13, I saw one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. So usually when we come to Matthew chapter 24 or Luke 21, Mark 13, we hear Jesus coming on the clouds of heaven. When we hear that phrase, we always think in terms of Jesus' second coming him coming to judge the world at the end of, of the world and He's coming on the clouds because we see in, uh, in Thessalonians, it talks about that He will come on the clouds. And so we, we always think in terms of His second coming. But when we pay attention here, we note something. It says, the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before Him. There was given to Him dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages serve Him. Coming on the clouds of heaven was not him coming to earth, was not the Son of Man coming to earth, but this is talking about the Son of Man coming before the Ancient of Days on the clouds of heaven. So he was coming before God, and he was receiving from him a kingdom. This is important because this is what those in the preterist camp, especially the full preterist camp, will focus in on. See, when it talks about the coming of the Lord, it's not talking about his second coming, it's only talking about his coming into his kingdom. Okay, we let's look again at... Let's go to Revelation chapter 4. Okay, if we look at Revelation chapter 4, it's a vision of God seated on his throne. We see him uh, when the living creatures, verse 9. Give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fell down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever. They cast their crowns before him, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory, honor, and power, for you have created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Because you are the creator, all things exist because of you. We worship you. So this is the vision that we saw in Daniel chapter 7 about the Ancient of Days. But then, in chapter 5, it brings out... uh, Let's go and start reading verse one. Then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll written and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? But no one in heaven or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open and to read the scroll or to look into it. So there's God sitting there with the scroll. You know, what is the scroll? We're going to read later what the scroll is about. It's, of course, in the rest of the book of Revelation, we're going to read the unrolling of the scroll. And we're going to read about judgments that were brought. But there's really a focus about what the scroll is. And it's going to, we're going to read it later on in this chapter, which is it's him receiving a kingdom, authority, and dominion. Him being sovereign to rule over history. And so this is not talking about something that's going to happen at the end of the world. This is talking about... Uh, whenever jesus christ rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of god we're going to see that here in verse five keeping in mind what we read in daniel chapter seven about the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven to the ancient of days to receive a kingdom verse five then one of the elders said to me do not weep look the lion of the tribe of judah the root of david has triumphed he is able to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals so he has been found worthy okay I saw the Lamb in the midst of the throne, the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, standing as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each one having a harp, a golden bowl of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song, You are worthy to take the scrolls and to open its seals, For you were slain and you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. So, in chapter 4, God was worshipped because he's the creator. But now in chapter 5, the lamb is worshipped because he is the redeemer. And so we see that. Then in verse 11, Then I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, just like we read in Daniel chapter 7 about the one that seated on the ancient of days that there were thousands upon thousands ministering to him, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory. And then it goes on in uh, verse 13. Then I heard of every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and power forever and ever. So we see here again, just like this phrase, the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven to the ancient of days and receiving a kingdom here at the beginning of the book of Revelation, just after the letters, before all the scrolls and seals begin to be, uh, unfurled throughout the book of Revelation, we see first Jesus coming into his kingdom. So whenever those in the preterist camp say that, oh, the coming of the clouds of heaven is only referring to that, they're half right. They're they're right in the sense that Jesus coming into his kingdom is described as the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. But that's not the only way that the scripture uses it. And we'll get into that. But let's go ahead and jump over to Matthew chapter 17. I want us to look here. And see a similar way that this phrase is used, so we can see why those in the preterist camp would get stuck on this and kind of what that they do. Okay, starting in verse now, this is whenever Jesus is about to go up to the transfiguration. Let's go ahead and start in verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? So this is talking about salvation issues. Then verse 27. For the Son of Man shall come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay every man according to his Works So this is talking about the day when Jesus Christ comes to judge the living and the dead. And then in verse 28, it says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death. So there's some standing here that are not going to die before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So the disciples that were talking with Jesus Christ, some of them would not die before they see Jesus coming in his kingdom. Does this mean the second coming? No, I don't believe that this means the second coming. Because it's talking about the coming of Jesus Christ to the Father and receiving the kingdom. This is why at uh, the Great Commission, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. So we see that this idea of the coming of Jesus Christ, not only being about his second coming, but also being about his uh, coming into his kingdom is clarified in this passage. But if you go to verse 27... Those in the Preterist camp will say, look, see, verse 27, For the Son of Man shall come with his angels and the glory of his Father, and then he will repay every man according to his works. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death before the, you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. They'll say, look, it had to happen in that generation. The coming of the Son of Man, which means coming into his kingdom, and him judging every man according to their works. So as best as I understand their system, they would say that this all happened in AD 70. But as I noted before, this is talking about salvation. So verse 27 is talking about his coming the second time when he's going to judge every man according to works. As it says at the end of the book of Revelation, in chapter 22, verse uh, verse. 25. Verse 12, look, I am coming. My reward is with me to get, give to each man according to his work. So this is talking about the second coming. Now those in the preterist camp would say, yeah, but Revelation was written written before AD 70. And so this was fulfilled in AD 70. This is why I say that it, it's a dangerous system because it pushes everything back so far and tries to put it all into one little uh, pocket and it doesn't all fit there. But if we look at Matthew chapter 16, verse 27 and 28, I believe the saying for the son of man will come with his angels and angels in the glory of his father. Then he will repay every man according to his works. It's talking about the end of the age. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death before they see the son of man coming in his kingdom until the kingdom of God is inaugurated, is begun to the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ and his ascension to the right hand of God. Some of those standing there would see that take place. Now let's flip back over to Matthew 24 and we want to ask the question, the question that will be asked by those in the the preterist camp, when they come to this passage, they'll say, look, the disciples had no idea that Jesus was going to die. If they didn't know he was going to die, how on earth could they know he was going to leave and then come back again sometime later? So the idea that Jesus is talking about his second coming in Matthew chapter 24, how could that be? Because they wouldn't understand that because they didn't know he was even leaving. Now, it is true that the disciples were, uh, Jesus said that they were slow of heart to believe and that they, uh, were, often, uh, they were often blind and they had lacked, lacked faith and they did not understand many of the things that he was saying. And so they did not understand that he was going to die, that he was going to rise again. Okay? But that does not keep Jesus from teaching what he teaches. So just because they didn't understand it, that doesn't mean that what Jesus is teaching is not about the second coming. No, it is. And we can see this if we turn over to Luke chapter 19. It is a passage we already looked at, but let's look there again and pay attention to something in in verse 11. As they heard these sayings, he continued and told them, this is 19, so this is leading up to Luke 21, which is parallel with Matthew 24. As they heard these things, he continued and told them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would immediately appear. So, those in the predator's camp are, to some degree, right. When they say that the apostles didn't understand Jesus was going to die, rise again, go to heaven, and come back a long time later. They didn't understand that. So, this is why Jesus is going to teach them. And what does he teach them? In verse 12, Therefore he said, A nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom and to return. So, here we see a couple things. One, When did he receive his kingdom? When did he come into his kingdom? As it said in uh, Matthew chapter 17. He came into his kingdom when he died, rose again, and went before the father, the ancient of days, received the scroll, and he was the one that is now seated on the throne with all authority in heaven and earth next to his father. That's when he received a kingdom. But he went to a distant country. So in this parable, Jesus is telling them, I'm going away. Whether they understood it or didn't understand it, when Luke was writing it and when Matthew is later, later writing in Matthew chapter 24, Matthew and Luke understood it at that point and Jesus understood it from the very beginning. So it says a nobleman will go to a distant country and receive a kingdom and will return. So... He's going away and he's going to come back again. So when we get back to Matthew 24, we said all that to say this. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is going to answer these questions in verse 3. And he said on the Mount of Olives, and the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? When is this temple going to be destroyed? And the answer is AD 70, but Jesus is going to explain more about it in Matthew chapter 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. He's going to explain it. And he says, but also... What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So whatever they meant by this. Well, you say, oh, but they didn't understand that he was going to come again. They didn't understand all these things. Maybe so. Whatever they were asking. Maybe they were asking, you know, when are we going to know that you're coming to your kingdom? And when are we going to know that the, this, this age of the Jews is all done and that you're judging the nation? Maybe they're asking that. They probably didn't understand any of that. But maybe they were asking that. Nevertheless, what Jesus answers is accurate. And he answers about what he talked about in Luke chapter 9 that I'm going to receive my kingdom and that I'm going to come and return. And so Jesus is not only going to talk about the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, he's also going to talk about the end of the world and his second coming at the end of the age. And so we will note that as we go forward. Now, before we close here, so let's go to Isaiah chapter 13. Now, In future videos, God willing, we're going to go through uh, Matthew 24, get off on all kinds of tangents, but we're going to go through 24 and we're going to understand that Jesus answered all the questions his disciples asked. When will these things be? What will be the sign that these things are about to take place? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So he's going to answer all of that in Matthew chapter 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. Okay? So we're going to look in that in detail. But as we jump into this passage, it's important that we understand one principle of Scripture. Uh, And this is something that we could find other passages that would give us an example of this, but we're going to look in Isaiah chapter 13. And we're going to ask the question, why, if Jesus is talking in Matthew 24, if he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in AD, why would then that blend somehow into the second coming and the end of the world? Why is it the Preterists confuse those two things. The reason is because the passage blends them together. Because as you read the passage, it's kind of hard to pick up where Jesus is saying about AD 70 and where he's talking about the end of the world. The reason this is so is because of apocalyptic literature. Uh, Whenever... Whenever the prophets would write about the destruction of something or the destruction of a city or a particular judgment that was coming on a nation, they would also include all kinds of grand language about the stars falling from the sky and all these great things that would seem so cosmic and like the whole world was involved in it when it was really only one location in one place in history. And so we see an example of this in Isaiah chapter 13. verse Starting in verse 1, "...the burden of Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amoz saw..." Lift up a banner on high, the mountain, exalt the voice to them, shake the hand that they may go into the gates of the nobles. So this is a burden of Babylon. In other words, this is a prophecy against the nation that came, the empire of Babylon. Verse three, I have commanded my sanctified ones. I have also called my mighty ones for my anger, even those who rejoice in my exaltation. The noise of the multitude in the mountains, like as of great people, a tumultuous noise of the kingdoms, of nations gathered together. The Lord of hosts musters the army for battle. They come from a far country, from the end of the heaven, the Lord and the weapons of his nation to destroy the whole land. They're coming to destroy the whole land of Babylon. God is bringing judgment from other nations on the land of Babylon. Verse 6: Wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. So this is the day of the Lord the day of the Lord for Babylon, a burden against Babylon. It shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands shall faint and every man's heart shall melt. So all those in Babylon are going to be filled with fear at what they see coming upon their nation. And they shall be afraid. Pangs and sorrows shall take hold of them. They shall be in pain as a woman who travails. So if you know, if you're familiar with Matthew chapter 24, you'll start to hear some of familiar language. As a woman who travails... They shall be amazed at one another and their faces shall be as flames. See, the day of the Lord comes, cruel both with fierce wrath and anger, to lay the land desolate and he shall destroy its sinners out of it. So he's coming to destroy the land of Babylon. He's coming. This is the day of the Lord, the day of God's judgment on the land of Israel. Verse 10 then makes a switch. For the stars of heaven and their constellations shall not give their light. The sun shall be dark when it rises, and the moon shall not cause her to light, her light to shine. So, when we go back and we study from history the destruction of Babylon, whenever Babylon was destroyed by the Medo-Persian Empire, you know, when that happened, did the, the, the sun stop giving light? The moon stop giving light? Did all this stuff happen? Did the stars fall from the sky? No, indeed, they did not. Verse 11, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. So, so somehow now, the prophet has shifted from talking about judgment, the day of the Lord on Babylon, to talking about the day of the Lord at the very end of time, when the whole creation, when all people, all mankind will suffer the day of the Lord. So this is an object lesson. The The... The prophet is pointing to this destruction that's coming on one nation as an object lesson of what God has prepared for all of the world at the end of time. What God is going to do cosmically at the end of time, he's doing in uh, one period of time, in one place in history. And I will cause the arrogance of the proud to cease and I will lay low the haughtiness of the ruthless. I will make a man more rare than fine gold and mankind than the golden wedge of Ophir. Therefore, I will shake the heavens and the earth shall be shaken out of her place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. So now it seems clear that he's talking about the end of the world. But if we jump over to verse 17, he switches back. See, I will stir up the medes against them who shall not regard silver. And as for gold, they shall not delight in it. Their bows shall dash to the pieces, the young men to pieces, and they shall have no pity on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes shall not spare them. Verse 19, Babylon, the glory of the kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans' excellency shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. So we see, yes, it is talking about Babylon. So when we flip back over to Matthew chapter 24, as we come to this passage, as we begin to focus on this passage and go through it step by step, we, if we use the paradigm, this apocalyptic paradigm, that even though it's talking about the destruction of the temple that the disciples were praising, they were saying these temples are great and Jesus is saying, no, these stones are going to be broken down. This temple that you're looking at is going to be destroyed. And they're asking when this is going to be. He is going to talk about that. But then he's also going to bring in other language that that encompasses the whole world, that encompasses the stars of the sky, that encompasses the sun and the moon, and all these things are going to be encompassed because when he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, he's going to be pointing to, foreshadowing, he's going to be using as an object lesson to point to the end of the world and the judgment that comes at the end. And then he's going to go into Matthew chapter 24 and he's going to begin to talk about that coming when he comes on the clouds of heaven, not in the sense that he's going to receive a kingdom, but when he's coming back in the glory of the angels of his father to judge the wicked and the dead and to give them according to what they have done. And so we need to see that this is a paradigm that is helpful to us, not only as we study in Matthew, but also if we look over to the book of Revelation and other passages of scripture. And so uh, God willing, we'll get into those uh, later on as we go. So in conclusion, uh, as we study through Matthew 24, we need to keep the questions in mind. The questions are, when will these things happen? what will be the sign that they're about to happen that is the destruction of Jerusalem which happened in AD 70 and Jesus is going to give an answer and what is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age Jesus is also going to talk about that in the passage so we'll go through that God willing step by step and running off on all kinds of tangents and try to get a better grasp of what the scripture is talking about when it's talking about the end of the world if this video has been helpful to you please like and share it so that it will kind of push it out to the algorithm so other people will be able to watch it uh, also, if you're subscribed, go ahead and push, push the notif- notification bell if you're interested in this t- subject so that in the future when I put the, the videos in this series out, you'll be able to notice. I'll probably try to keep the thumbnail uh, basically the same. That's why I try to do in most series. I try to keep the thumbnail about the same so that you can recognize that this is uh, something continued on, on that topic. But I hope this has been helpful to you, and I hope you're blessed in the Lord. God bless.